Andy. Hey, good to see you. How are you? Yeah, really good, thank you. Um, loving being in London in the warm weather, so yeah, it's fantastic. That makes a change, doesn't it? Yeah, it it's fantastic. It is. It's a bit like South Africa, but at different times of year. Yeah, a bit like that, it's but it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's very it's very different. Just come from the rain and the cold, coming to the UK for yeah. uh, the sunshine is amazing. Spend more time here. Ah, <laughs> probably no. will do. Good. Well, I think a good place to start would be to tell the you know the listeners, the audience a little bit about yourself, how you got into the recruitment world, what that journey's looked like to to where you are today. Sure. I mean, I'm I'm Andy Hallett. Um, I. Uh, Probably started my recruitment journey um, at university, so um, I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I got elected president of the Students' Union at Reading University, which is the greatest job in the world. You basically get paid for a year to be a student and run a business. So that was fantastic, and, and then I had to get a proper job, and a couple of my friends were working in recruitment, and you know they were telling me about the sort of money they could earn. Um, obviously, it was very hard work, but I knew I was better than them, and I could probably do even better than them as well. So um, I, I turned up um, for a few interviews, um, ended up working for a company called Huxley Associates, um, which was, um, I think, the third brand that um, was, was formed and later became the S3 group. So I started my career on a contracts desk in London in July 1999. Great. What was it like back then? Um, it was very different to what I see now. Um, I could only equate it to a very hardcore sales environment, very telephone-based. It, it felt like, you know, being in the city of London, that you're on a, in, a, in a trading centre, in a trading mm-hmm. environment. Uh, I think the film Boiler Room had just come out, and uh, it's probably as close as um, you know. If, if you've seen the film Boiler Room, that's or the old Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, yeah. That's how it felt. Okay. And at the time, did you did you take to it easily? Did you enjoy it? Because you, you hear some people who didn't. You know, they, they they lasted a matter of months and they left and they've never gone back to it. But you're still here, so there must have been something you liked. I think there was two things I really enjoyed about it to start with. The first was um, that. I actually had no responsibility other than just get on and do deals. And um, I'd been in a, a situation for the previous year where at the age of, I think, 22, I was responsible for a £5 million a year turnover business, legally responsible for the, um, for the trust, mm. and actually not having 50 employees mm. with all the problems that goes with that um, was actually quite nice, just being able to get on with it. Uh, the second thing was, as well, racked up with student debt, and um, you know, my 10 k basic didn't go very fast, so I had to do deals. So didn't really have much time to do anything else than spend it in the office. Um, I was work. I was living in Reading still, so I was commuting into London and working in the city at that age was just fantastic. Yeah, I bet. So the contract world now is it's kind of it's just getting more and more traction. But what was it back like like that back then, late nineties? Um, Fairly we, new. We, was we, it? we were honestly um, the poor relations of the office. Yeah. So when I joined, contracts were you know they were the the, the team that were. Um, it was generally, if you weren't posh enough to do permanent, then you ended up on contracts. Huxley was a banking brand, and you know we really, everyone hated us. And we loved that, actually. It was, it was actually, you know, it was actually, um, it created that sort of team spirit. And, you know, when I think back to some of the salespeople I worked with there, they were just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So you learned a lot from some of the... Some of the best. Hundred uh, percent. My first boss was a guy called Scott Fulton, um, who went out and ran uh, S3 Americas mm-hmm. uh, on the West Coast. Um, my manager at the time was a guy called Mike Smith, um, who um, later came on to run uh, S3 UK, 
And of course, Gary Eldon was MD at the time at Huxley, and you know, later went on to be CEO of S3. And there, there were there were ten other brilliant people in that office like them. Um, and also as well, there was a lot of people who then went on to start their own businesses in that office yeah. as well. Adam Buck, who went on to form and sell Faden, uh, Mark Zanofsky. Yeah, the list could go on with the number of people that um, were in that office and have actually founded great businesses. Yeah, yeah. And what was the experience of Light S3 through the through those years? Like you say, I know it's it's produced a lot of people who are still very well de- well established and doing great things in the industry. So you must it must have been a, a great learning ground into a career which was all but new to you. Yeah, so I joined in '99, and um, Bill and Simon, um, who were the founders of the of the company, um, they started Computer Futures, I think, back in 1986. So they were they were they were still involved, but they were sort of on their exit path. There was a um, investment from Barclays Private Equity, 25%, I think, at the time, with a view that the company would float. And a lot of people were incentivized to stay to build their own businesses because um, you know of the uh, of the uh, of the shares that were about to, yeah. to to come through, so I can only describe it as um, a very um, meritocratic but very entrepreneurial, intrapreneurial environment where people were incentivized to start new desks, start new teams, start new territories, even start new countries, new brands, but within the wrapper. Whereas today, I think people have to go outside of those bigger companies to to get that mm. to get that get that fixed but I think we were one of the largest um, private companies at the time and you know subsequently you know had to then act like a public company to yeah. uh, uh, I think the float in 2005 2006 but very much the the DNA the culture um, was super strong from um, still from those Bill and Simon days okay so it came from the founders and that was instilled through everybody who who joined and wanted to stay yeah, 100%. So you had uh, Bill and Simon, then they had the first employees, Russell Clements, Tim Lloyd, Sunil Wicks, and effectively you know, that, that was just passed down through, you know, from around the campfire. Mm-hmm. Um, those, those people just learned what to do, made it repeatable, kept it very, very simple, yeah. and just did well. Oh, very good. And you know, understood you did some interesting things at your time at S3 beyond the, the contracts? Yeah, so... Uh, I um, worked as a contract recruiter for a number of years and did the classic training consultant through to manager. And I think it was after about seven years, um, I got the opportunity to do a, a different role. Um, Huxley were very much um, always looking to get an edge. Uh, the good thing about the brands is they used to compete very, very heavily. Although they were part of the same group, all the money ended up in the same pot generally. The brands were super competitive. And at that time, the Huxley brand, I think, went from number three to number one. But there was a lot of reasons why we did that. We invested heavily in our infrastructure. We took people who were you know, you know, strong billers, strong managers, and put them into roles. So rather than them just sort of managing teams of 10, 20, they could have an influence on a 500-man business, which was Huxley um, at the time. So um, I ended up um, as commercial um, manager for Huxley, so I was responsible for a lot of the building of the databases, a lot of the data management, our direct marketing, our contract structures, our internationalization, just making sure that we're completely optimized and making the most profitable decisions all of the time. So... um, 
yeah, really good opportunity. And at the time, I worked alongside Zoe Brent, who again, another investment were made, and she made sure that you know, Huxley were ahead of the internal recruitment. The training was absolutely on point. The marketing was on point. So um, I always remember one of the other MDs said, um, you know, I invested in four salespeople and Gary invested in you and Zoe to put the infrastructure of the brand. And latterly after that, when um, when the brands became probably a lot closer under the under the PLC, um, mm. I moved in and I did that role for the group, so okay. for, all, for all brands. Right, excellent. And then how long did you stay with the group before moving on to new ventures? So I pretty much did the commercial director role at S3 through till 2017. And right, okay. then I got uh, what I can only describe as the best job in the industry. So it was definitely the best job at S3. It was looking at innovation and investment. So S3 um, you know, traditionally have been you know, a very traditional you know, recruitment firms grown through organically, hasn't grown through acquisition, you know, has just done you know, the things repeatably well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that won't cut it forever. And actually, you know, the, the threat of disruption and the continual threat of disruption I was tasked um, to build up and effectively look at secondary ventures. So uh, if you like um, spinning up platforms, we built a video platform. We um, became early stage adopters in technology and effectively placing seed bets on a number of emerging technologies that we felt had the power to either disrupt or build you know, distinct revenue streams into um, into the business. So mm. I did that for a couple of years, mm. and that was just fantastic. And it was almost like finishing school. It was taking an ex- existential look at the um, at the uh, looking at S three outside in. And by twenty nineteen, I'd pretty much done my twenty. Um, I you know, I'd, as I say, I'd, I'd, I'd looked on the outside, and it's then very difficult to come back in yeah. and do what I'd call a really sort of traditional corporate type job again when you know you sort of traded the shirt and tie and you know the, the board meetings for a, yeah. for, a, for a hoodie and yeah. uh, you know in a we work <laughs> office and those so um it's a really good natural time to 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 move on and um yeah it's been it's been interesting took a took a break took some time out um and then covid hit and uh i decided i pretty much ought to get on with it so uh yeah so you've seen some change over the years. You got what two thousand and eight, the financial crisis. You then had Brexit, and then obviously the the pan, pandemic. Any any standouts over those periods of of opportunity and and challenges for recruitment? I, th- I think what's really useful for anyone watching this now, and you know who who probably is seeing a market that's more difficult than it was last year, is that this this is normal. You know, ups and downs are normal. Um, when I first joined, um, it was Y two K. So we were on contracts. No one wanted to touch their systems. They're all compliant. Code freezes. No one wants to touch it. Then the brakes came off. 2000, we went um, gangbusters again. Then the dot-com crash, mm-hmm. 2001. And, and that obviously hit the software industry pretty, pretty hard. And, you know, but we've seen it, as you say, 2008, the, um, you know, sat there, you know, no one believed Lehman Brothers could go down. You know, yeah. Yeah. number of contractors Enron nobody could have foreseen a company which was so big um, you know, so brash you know hiring the best you yeah know, the, nothing was too good and guess what they went yeah. um, so other shocks that we've seen a lot of um, a lot of the strategy was based around oil and gas and mm-hmm. in 2014-15 mm-hmm. big change in that market so 
it's pretty normal to see these type of things. And um, experienced recruiters would have seen that. But a number of companies I know that actually it's started in a downturn and then yeah, it's actually then you're just looking up. So I count myself fortunate. Um, I started my business in March 20 and I started the business with Dalton and Charlotte in I think June 20. Mm-hmm. And it was a really good time to do it um, because I think it was very much a level playing field. Um, a lot of established um, um, both consultancies and networks and groups you know, had, you know, you know, big infrastructures, you know, they were carrying a lot of costs going into it, whereas, you know, we were very nimble, we were very light um, and able to start. So, and and also as well, there's, there's nothing like a, uh, right, okay, not sure how long this is going to last, um, motivation yeah. to get you out of bed and get you going. But, um, yeah, so I don't think, you know, we'll see such a black swan event as we did with COVID for another good few years. But these... Uh, recessions these um these ups and downs are not normal what i would say is this year the amount of variation you see month to month in the market is probably you probably see in in seeing in a quarter what you'd normally see in a year in terms of that variation um so and and that's across the board um doesn't matter which country doesn't matter whether you're talking to recruitment firms if i'm talking to the big payroll firms it's pretty uniform why do you think that is i just think it it feels very, very strange at the moment. You've got these forces which don't actually add up. You've you've actually got a whole war for talent still going on. You know, there are still a whole host of jobs that need filling and not the people to fill them. And also, you've got this weird situation of um, effectively very high inflation, which is going to drive prices, which is going to, you know, people are going to need to get new jobs just to, you know, to, to stay even. So there is this um, backwards and forwards, um, I think, at the moment. And I think the other thing is that the big tech companies have almost replaced the banks in the, uh, the banks used to be the guys that hire if they stopped hiring, the market went on free. You know, the market went on free six months later. They start mm-hmm. hiring, the market comes back. Mm-hmm. It's these big tech companies now, and it's the layoffs that you're seeing there that's probably driven a lot of fear into the market. Actual reality is that you know investments are still being made. I think we see it starting to see VCs sort of starting to deploy capital again, which will again really sort of grease the wheels of of, of commerce again. So. I think it's actually a fair market if we're talking in terms of um, recruitment right now. Um, firms who've got good processes, firms who've got good customer relations, firms who've got you know, good candidate databases are able to navigate this. Um, they're not getting the super normal profits that they would have had for last year where um, it was you know, a market like I haven't seen in years. But you know, for experienced recruiters, it's still okay. And do you think people know how to navigate what's going on? I think some do and, and some don't. Um, I think if you've if you've never known um, if you're a if if you're a new recruiter post COVID, you've never known this type of market. Yeah, yeah. So what we actually had from COVID was a whole pent up need to do projects, a whole pent up redistribution. So you had this great redistribution. Everyone talked about a great resignation. I disagree. I think it was a redistribution. You effectively had people who uh, sat there in a job they didn't want to be in and actually, you know, I can 
I'm going to go and do something. If this is, you know, this is my life, then I'm going to go and yeah, do something yeah, different. Yeah. Then you have people who, um, you know, quite enjoyed you know, working from home. And, you know, the thought of going back into the office, they changed. You have people who hated working from home, who, you know, then their company said we're going office-less and, and then want to move on. So I think there was not only um, a lot of capital injected into the economy, but also as well a lot of people made different lifestyle changes as well. I mean, you saw it, you know, the amount of people that fled London to go and live in the countryside. Yeah. And, you know, because you know, they wouldn't anticipate having to come back into towns and cities again. Mm-hmm. So with those three things you've summarised, the war for talent, the high inflation, the lifestyle changes, where do you see those agencies who are doing particularly well taking advantage of those areas? Are there any... Because you, you know, here at Target Recruit, we speak with a lot of agencies who are... They're diversifying it to do um, new lines of business. They're opening up into new regions, such as the States. So there's not that many that we come across who are just wanting to, to sit still and take taking stock of the situation. They're being quite ambitious and essentially taking risks. So where where do you think those areas are where there's the, the biggest opportunities for those ambitious agencies? So right now, I think, um, if I didn't have a contract business, I'd be building one. Um, Right. It's if you actually look at the, the the economic shock we've seen, it's been the permanent markets, and you can read this in the results of all the big quoted companies. So contract businesses are um, not only more resilient to this, but they're also valued significantly higher. So I think in this market, building that reoccurring revenue is really important for for any firm because you can ride out these shocks uh, a lot better. Um, you know, you still you still get downturns, but they're just a lot smoother and a lot more predictable, and you're actually able to run, navigate your business significantly easier. Mm-hmm. Anything else beyond the contract world? I, I know it's a, it's a broad question, but there's you know you, we we see people trying different things, and it's it's where they prioritise it, I guess. I think um, I think for me, the firms that do well just know what they do and they stick to the knitting. And be that their niche, be that their territory, be that their, um, be that their industry, they're just very good at what they do. Mm. And they don't second guess themselves. They don't look over the fence at other people. Um, if they've got to a point of success, they know what makes them successful and they'll double down on, on that and get even better. So um, the grass is always, always greener or appears greener um, for a lot of people, um, but actually being repeatably good at what you do well yeah. is it's both less risky but it's also likely to be a lot more profitable okay sustained with the basics but also being ambitious and for those people who are looking to you know say go into the contract world and they're not used to it how would you recommend they do it do they look to bring consultants in to advise them do they look to bring somebody from the contract world as a permanent hire to to be the the front of that business i'm sure you saw a lot of that with s3 where there was different brands which came within the same groups some things were successful some others but where if someone is looking to make that that leap, where do they start? Yeah, it depends on the size of your investment and your investment appetite. Um, so you can do it in a number of different ways. You can go out and hire a contracts director who can build their own team. Um, you can go and hire yourself a, um, a team leader stroke principal who can start the billing themselves and then bring people on and add to it. Or you can hire someone who's done contract and get them to build out the desk and then then mm. then grow from there. So there's a number of different ways you can do it depending on your appetite for risk. Um, I think the thing common for me though is 
always get someone with contracts experience. And the reason I say that's important is just a very different skill set to mm -hmm. permanent recruitment. Um, I've, I've seen good contract consultants go onto permanent desks. I've very rarely seen it go the other way, permanent recruiters that can move on to contracts. It's, it's almost how, how I describe it to people who don't know the industry. Um, it's, it's almost like rugby. If you didn't understand the difference in rugby union and rugby league, you'd think it's the same game. The pitch is the same, the ball looks the same, you know, the players almost look the same, but it's very, very different. Yeah. Uh, watched by different people, different rules. Um, you know, it, it, and and it, it's it's similar for me. I, I feel with with, with contract that it, it's just that different skill set. Okay. And then for those businesses that are looking at the move into new regions, where where are people doing well and and not? We we had PGC on recently from in our podcast, and they were talking about the that there's a lot of people looking west to to break into the us and and capitalize on what appears to be a very ripe market are you are you experiencing a lot of people who are wanting to look further afield outside of the uk yeah so um a lot of what we did at s3 i mean when i joined s3 um it was 99.5 percent uk based mm. uh, i think there was a small office in belgium that was mm. the 0.5 or one percent and by the time I left, the UK was only 13%. And you know, the two big regions for, um, uh, for S3 were Germany and the US. The US is a natural place for people to start. Um, you've obviously got um, the same language, which is a massive, massive help um, that allows people. And I've actually seen a trend, actually, as well from... You know, it used to be that used to get UK business and then used to do the US. I've actually just seen a number of firms now just setting up in the UK and just targeting the US straight off the bat, which is which is an interesting, you know, almost why why start in the UK when you can you know, if you want to go to the US, just go to the US first. Mm. And and it is an it's a very interesting um, dynamic. Um, the reasons that people like the US, um, the the deal sizes tend to be significantly higher. Mm -hmm. um, there is um, a perception that there's less competition. Um, the, you know, the, the the fees are higher. I think it's more respected potentially industry, um, but you know, there's you know, it's not an overnight thing. This has been a gold rush for the last twenty odd years, so it's not um, it's not a brand new thing that people are going to do that. The other the other very solid territory is Germany. Uh, again, it's 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 not as a mature market as the UK. Um, the um, yeah, the the need for talent there is is very very strong. Um, there's more con cultural complexities in 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 dealing in Germany, but again, it's it's something that you know a number of firms I know service Germany from the UK very very effectively. Mm -hmm. Okay, and with your the consultancy side of your business, when when do you see people coming to you for your advice and guidance, and what are they what are they typically asking? support and guidance on yeah so typically i work with firms that are looking to grow it's it's really as simple as that and you know for smaller firms i will um do it a lot more um and i'll um i'll, I'll be quite generalist in my in my support and but as the firm grows i'll niche into my specialist areas which is contract contract operations international contracts and technology technology adoption so i'll you know i'll tend to niche into that but um what I think I really enjoy most about consulting is is working with people to get to the solution that they want to get to, which is which is most important. People have 
an idea of what they want to achieve. But um, when they hire me, I hopefully make that um, achievable for them and take yeah. them on the take them on the journey. Yeah. Okay. So they know where they want to get to, but they need the, the guidance to take them there. Yeah. Most people normally know or have an idea of where they want, and you know. It, it is really about working with them, um, taking that, really understanding what it is they're looking to achieve, working that through, prioritising, um, and just just being accountable for getting those results for them. Okay. You mentioned moving in the contract world and also technology adoption. Let's spend a bit of time on that. So what's your experience of the technology adoption now but also what you've experienced since you started uh, back in in 2017 so i think <sighs> recruitment's always been told that technology is going to kill recruitment be it um mm. i remember when i joined it was the internet that was going to kill recruitment then it was the job board's going to kill recruitment then it was linkedin's going to kill recruitment and what you've you know next it will be AI is going to kill recruitment and what we've actually found is recruiters are uh, brilliant evolution so you know they'll take these things and they'll just use them to their advantage rather than it being a threat they've actually you know over the years you've actually seen recruiters take these tools and just be so much better with them yeah. so I think for me the um, it's it's a constant challenge. I wrote an article a few years ago when Game of Thrones was really big about winter's you know winter's coming, but winter's always been here, and it's that constant you know up down recession you know um, start again you know um, and and you see that with technology and technology adoption. I think the recruiters that uh, do well have built their infrastructure, and that normally means a good technical stack and you know will use it as well and they'll not only use it for storing data searching for candidates but also they'll use that to monitor their business and effectively make better decisions based on data okay and with you know we we see it with obviously um being a, a crm provider ourselves on on salesforce we see technology changing all of the time customers needs changing all the time Problems don't necessarily change unless the business is, is changing. So how does the how does the business stay at the forefront of those of, of adopting the right technology for for running their organisation? I think you've got to be always clear on what you, is you're trying to achieve. So um, in terms of you know, I've seen people buy the very best technology and use it badly. You're actually just better off. You know, you're, I think a, I think a bad CRM used well is better than a brilliant CRM used badly. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think it's about focusing on what it is you need to achieve um, and what's really important to your business. And that will be different for different companies, different markets, different different territories. But I think just having a real eye on the prize of this is what we're looking to achieve. Yeah, and everything else falls back from that. Okay, and you you at S three you were heading up that you're responsible for looking at what was in the market what if an organization doesn't have doesn't have that resource doesn't have the expertise we were recently speaking with with rob green at Rectech, and this question came up as to who, who's nominated to look at it and how often do they look at it yeah typically um it depends on the size of the business and if you're a small company that would Traditionally, be the the founder, the owner, yeah, and, yeah. and and as you go up the size of the business, it'd probably be the ops person and get bigger. Chances are they'll have a CIO. So I think it really, really depends. But I was 
just a small part of a very big machine. Um, but the advice to a small company um, is exactly the same as I'd give to a big company that you've got to work out what what are your core processes what do you, you know what 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 do your customers want to um, uh, see you know and and actually I think I think the problem most people don't they see it through the lens of the recruiter yeah and they see it through the yeah. lens of the owner they don't see it through the lens of what the customer um, both and customer is both a candidate and the customer is also your your client who pays the bill as yeah. well so I think for me um, I would always go back to that what is it you're looking to achieve um, be very clear around what your core processes are and then you, your selection should become if not easier at least more narrowed down yeah I think you raise a good point there because what a business wants to achieve and also what their customers want aren't necessarily aligned so sometimes technology has to straddle the two between what the business is wanting to achieve but also what their customers are asking for um i guess that comes into the whole conversation about how flexible technology can be and but moving out a system like a crm isn't it 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 can for a lot of organizations but it's a lot of disruption and it's a bit of a thankless task particularly because it doesn't happen all the time i know that s3 within five years they switched out their crm three times just to stay ahead of the market so do you do you recommend people to be constantly evolving with the tech stack or try and find somebody who's going to be working with them and, and adapt I, I still come back to the customer every yeah. business book you read will say that if you look after the customers the profits come um i i you know i, I summarize the work it's probably spent you know years and years writing but and typically if you look at the um, the, the profits versus CEO, you know, it, it's linear. Mm. So I would say listen to your customers and then build back. Um, I obviously left the organisation in 2019, but um, when we were working on systems, the things that you know, CRM was pretty um, was pretty standard, but the thing that was most important was the search. Um, it was called the Apollo search at the time. And the thing that gave a unique difference to S3 was their ability to deliver candidates. So, you know, there are great firms out there all day, every day. I genuinely believe that the USP was, you know, certainly while I was there, that ability to deliver a candidate. You know, if there was um, uh, some random technology, um, there were seven people in the world that knew it, we'd know who, you know, the best person placed was to to do, to do that. Mm. Um, and we're able to deliver. Mm. Um, mm. And that for me was the, you know, if you like, the, the USP okay. around it. But the search was where all of the investment went. And, you know, that, that, was, that was very, very important as well. So focused on the things that really, really mattered. So around that ability to put people in the right jobs and search for them efficiently, why was S3 so good with that? I'm kind of coming, coming from that, from like a technology perspective. So was it the data? Was it the systems, the processes, the people? What, what, why was it so successful? There's, there's a whole number of things um, there. So first and foremost, um, the candidate acquisition strategy was completely on point, um, even from the very days of when it was manual. Um, Bill and Simon um, basically used to buy up the uh, back pages of Computer Weekly. So it was pretty much six back pages with six brands of ads. Mm. So every time a CV came in, um, it was... It was treated as an asset. Um, it was coded up. Back in the day, it would have been on a very manual system. Mm. Um, um, but then going forward, it was indexed into 
um, you know, Oracle databases. So what actually changed, the paradigm change used to become that it was very, you know, companies didn't have a lot of data. They, they, they couldn't, and they couldn't retrieve it quickly. What um, the likes of electronic databases did is meant you could hold vast waves of data, and then the challenge became getting to that data. So the tools that you know to find and search across your data had to get better and better. So I, I think it was a mixture of you know caring about data, and and actually what you're going to see is data is you know uh, expression data is the new oil. So what you're actually going to start to see now is that. You know, back in the day, if you had a CV came in, you had to tag it, you had to code it, you had to look. But that's almost like um, the paradigm is the internet. So you don't need to know the URL because you can just Google it, you can just search it. You don't actually need to know, you know, that where everything is because you can just find it. And I think what you're going to start to see is the companies that do have big data will start, you know, some of the. Uh, some of the the systems will get even smarter at being mm. able to retrieve data quicker, mm -hmm. faster, and with a greater skill than potentially very highly skilled consultants can do so. Mm. I mean, that would be interesting because capitalizing on that data and knowing what to do with it is a is a huge topic and question in itself. You know, you've got organisations who have got reams and reams of data, but they're not necessarily capitalizing it because the system that they use can't interrogate it, and when it is interrogated it's not necessarily spitting out anything meaningful for them to know what to do with it? Yeah, recruitment's quite an interesting industry in, in the sense that it's both B2C and B2B. So you're B2B with your, your customers, so you treat them almost in a CRM management way, managing that. But you almost need that sort of B2C um, approach that then, you know, if you look at it, the online retailers do it really well. They know who you are, mm. they know your profile. Mm. They know when you're going to buy. They know if you've not bought for a while to send you an offer, et cetera, et cetera. So I think recruitment isn't, uh, has, has moved on uh, in the sense that now uh, it used to be very much around sales. Um, I think there's a whole new marketing aspect, but also as well, it's become a data management business. And if you actually break down, if someone were to look at a recruitment business um, from the outside, and didn't know what it was, but just looked at what the processes people did. They'd see you'd see it as a data management um, business, mm -hmm. and 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 that's why I think the firms that invest in their technology, invest in training their teams to use that technology and maximise that technology, are the ones that are best placed to um, to really do well in this market. And do you find that perhaps contracting term are more or interrogating the data more often than perhaps a, a traditional perm business? where things move slower than particularly the temp world does. Yeah, so contracting is 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 about, you know, the immediacy. It's about yeah. getting to that candidate potentially before your opposition. Um, um, so yeah, it's, it's speed is it's speed is everything. So if you have a large database, if it's well organized, or you've got tools to um, get you there quickly. Um, the other thing I would say is that good recruiters um, manage pools. So they manage pools of customers, they manage pools of candidates. Mm -hmm. Technology now enables you to do that easy, even easier in terms of you know, having that permanent conversation, in terms of having you know, things like chatbots to reach out and say, we've got these vacancies. Um, and I actually think the, the, the recruiters who use their, um, use their assets to the most are the ones that are going to be most successful in this market. Okay. And do you think that's usually a, a skill which has been born from 
the inside or needs somebody with a fresh pair of eyes to come in and, and advise on that? Because it's very easy to get, get into your day job and not necessarily think about a new innovative way to, to work. You mentioned there at S3 that it was a, people were um, encouraged to be entrepreneurial. And I guess when you've got all your peers with that mindset, you, you're going to breed from it. But not necessarily all businesses have that sort of culture. No, typically, I mean, I, 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 was, a, I was a strange, um, in, a, in a strange role. And it's a, it's an unusual role, but there, there are lots of people who end up in these sort of commercial stroke technical roles that are there not because they're technical, but they understand the business. Mm. And so when I, I was working with IT departments um, and finance departments for some of the back office things, the thing that I was able to add value was I understand actually it's really difficult to do a deal. It's really competitive out there. It's actually really hard work yeah. and actually understanding the process and understanding why certain uh, moments of truth are important as well um, is, is and, and to get that out and to explain that so that when you're building these systems and processes that it's not in a vacuum and it makes sense to the real world because recruitment is hard. You know, yeah. being a recruiter is tough work. Yeah. So... Um, you want those systems and processes to support. So I think from from my perspective, um, I think having those outside view, a lot of people who start recruitment businesses are really, really good salespeople. They've been good salespeople, they've been good managers, good directors, but traditionally they've not been involved in that part of the business. You know, they, mm -hmm. they would have worked for a firm mm -hmm. where they perhaps didn't have P&L responsibility. They perhaps didn't, they, they were just told which system to work on they didn't have to think about the marketing because there was a marketing department so typically um, when I'm working with firms it's it's supporting them on the areas that they might know but you know they're either just not second guessing themselves and just giving them the courage of their convictions to you know to do the right thing and that certainty around yeah they are doing the right thing yeah okay you, just going back to I think you've raised a really good point around the the customer needs because um, I, I don't think everybody necessarily thinks always with the customer in mind but it would be useful just to explore that a bit further particularly around how you've seen customer needs changing over you know, the last 20 odd years from when you started in 99 through to where to where we are now because it's, it's all well you know we were talking about how um, you get engaged with organizations who want to grow Where's, how has the customer evolved over that period of time? Um, the customer's more sophisticated, mm -hmm. so they understand the process. And the customer also, as well, uh, has a lot more opportunity to do it themselves, is the other thing. And Is that what you found? Yeah, I think, I think you've, you've obviously seen um, a big rise in, so I, I think marked differences since I started nearly 25 years ago, are uh, that you've got, the rise of the in-house team. So you're finding that um, you know, companies are investing. And it's not just a cost thing. They're actually investing because they want the experience of their you know, people looking at joining their organization to be um, to be to be strong and they want to want to own that. They don't want to outsource that necessarily to, to an agency um, to, to do that. There's obviously, you know, questions around can they ever have the same reach as an agency that do this all day, mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. But for core positions, you know, I've seen some really good in in-house teams. 
And, and the, the second thing I would say is the big difference is the product used to be the person you found. It used to be the candidate. Yeah. Whereas the candidate now is available. You know, they're, they're sound LinkedIn. You can you know, potentially get online, you know, a direct job response. Um, those, you know, it, the data is, is, is more available. So it's actually become a lot more about the service. So it's about how, how that is presented, how the, the candidates are, are managed, how the, you know, the process feels, et cetera, et cetera. So I think whereas it used to be, okay, it was fine, we could get away with just finding, you know, they were a good developer, you needed a good developer, great. It now has to be all around the service because there are a lot of companies that can find you a good developer. Yeah. And you could potentially even find it yourself. yourself so, yeah. so it's that service layer that I think has really, really changed. So I think it's gone from being a product business to a service business. Okay, and then how, how did the, the businesses who are doing well, who are, you know, they're really clued up to that customer experience and providing the service rather than just the, the other side of the product, the person, where, where are they doing the right things? So I think it's about, it, it's about being very good at, you know, I talked before about just being repeatable. You know, they, they, they're not trying to do everything. They're just trying to do what they do and do it very, very well. Mm. Um, they will manage customers' expectations. They'll work. You know. I, I think the best, the best companies that I see are the ones that just focus on delivering, um, managing, you know, building their people well and delivering a great service for their customers. Everything else looks after itself if you can do that. Okay. Sounds straightforward. It, it it does sound straightforward, and um, it's really not. And and the thing is, I, I I just look back at how complex the role has got. So back in '99, you pretty much had the telephone. You, know, you could email, um, you're still faxing and, and and sending out. But yeah, it was it was relatively straightforward role. There wasn't a lot to manage. Find find jobs, find candidates, fill them. Um, whereas now, if you look at what a 360 consultant's got mm. to do in terms of you know managing their LinkedIn profiles, you know building outreach campaigns, um, they, you know, they've 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 got to be you know marketeers, they've got to be salespeople, yeah. um, they've you know, and there's there's so much more to the job mm -hmm. than there used to be. I think the consultants mm -hmm. that do really well are the ones that are super organised and just keep it as simple as they can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And are you finding that that's still it still attracts people who are hungry and who, you know, like you wanting to make money, even though there is there are more elements to the job. I mean, technology is not new to people now. They kind of know that they're going to have to be on LinkedIn. They know how to use a system, a database. They've probably used it in previous jobs. So do you think people are still coming in with eyes wide open, knowing that they're going to have to get into those things? I think recruitment is a very transient job. Um, um, no, yeah, the classic, no one ever grows up wanting to be a recruitment consultant. It's a job that people fall into. You know, generally, um, and you know, some people stick at it. Um, I think recruitment's got an issue, and it's always had an issue with the amount of churn it has. Yeah. A lot of people come into the industry and leave it. And yeah, I think it's you know, I, I remember when I told my job, I was um, um, uh, I was getting a job as a recruitment consultant. She asked me when I was going to get a proper job, and you know, it probably took a few years of you know. You know buying things like houses and cars and um, you know doing you know, meetings abroad and holidays mm -hmm. abroad to actually oh, maybe it's a you know is a proper um, yeah, a proper job but I think recruitment should start to see itself more as a profession yeah. um, than 
than than a job and to do that as well yeah it needs to take a longer term view um i think people who come into the industry need to know that it is a rewarding career um but also as well it's very very tough to um to start with a guy called john lee i used to work with um long time ago just said um, no one ever fails at recruitment they just give up mm. mm-hmm. i've heard that before actually so wh- where where do people start? Who's who's responsible? I know there's not one person, but who, who's responsible for changing how I guess the the industry is viewed and making it more of a profession and essentially reducing that churn? So I think it, it's a classic. It, it's everyone. Recruitment is a product of um, also as well as the products of the customers. I mean, if you actually look um, where customers pitch five recruitment companies against each other on a contingent mandate, mm. then actually you're not going to get you know you're not going to get the same level of service as if you left it on a retainer with um with with one um so yeah and the it's very very difficult to say how do you stop the race potentially to the bottom of fees and Mm -hmm. service so i think customers and customers you know are the ones that effectively determine you pay for what you you pay for what you get so, but agencies as well, you know, the, the, the very top agencies drive quality into the process and, you know, know their value. Yeah, okay. And then you were saying, you know, that there's been a lot of change which is happening a lot more frequent now rather than, you know, taking several quarters, it takes several months. So where, where do you see the, the next big changes in the, in the short term? So I think you look for the economic indicators. So I think when you start to see things like inflation, you know, which is, is probably peaked but doesn't seem to be sliding away, mm. I think you'll start to see you know, people effectively holding fire on making investments while that's, that seems pretty high because you know, un, you know, the, the cost of borrowing is going up, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that might have us in a holding pattern for a little while um but you know there's this i also think as well with um new technologies like generative ai you're actually going to see this again a redistribution of jobs there's going to be whole industries where you know this will they will be disrupted um you know look at something like copywriting um now copywriters you know i don't know if there is um evolutionary savvy as um as uh, as recruiters but would you start a career in copywriting right now mm, probably not probably not um and the ones who are really good at it will continue to one imagines um outright um but probably use things like generative ai to their advantage so you're going to see you know, literally you know like an industrial revolution you're going to see certain jobs um, that, that that will cease to exist or mm. will only exist for, in a specialist um, specialist area mm-hmm. um, going forward. So, I think it's about understanding what new opportunities these technologies. So, um, I think you're going to see um, a lot of challenge around that, and 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 actually, um, you're going to see a lot of social potentially problems as a result of, mm-hmm. you know, typically these changes yeah and do you think that with those changes particularly around ai and the redistribution is it the is it the industry or do you think and i know it's tied up but do you think it's going to be the the agencies or the customer who's who's driving that change 
I think I think historically it's been the customer need will drive the change. Yeah. So and and the agencies again have been pretty good at uh, adapting to um, the need, but I I think you know recruiters will you know. Some of the use cases, um, we've seen um, Dominic at Required who've brought in to um, act as our specialist. Um, the amount of interesting... <coughs> excuse me. Um, the amount of interesting use cases that we're seeing now that you can... Um, it's just phenomenal. So I think... Um, Such as? Do you have any examples? So I think just the ability to you know, order candidates, I think to you know, rewrite job specs, um, to profile, um, to write um, adverts that really sort of lean into what the end customer is mm-hmm. trying to feel. Um, you know, so if you effectively feed in, you're recruiting for a company, feed in that company's website to, uh, and then you know, rewrite me this job spec. So you know, it gets that you get the feel of the company that comes mm-hmm. through. Um, I think um, there's potentially, um, you're gonna see uh, a lot of this technology be able to um, reduce bias um, um, in, you know, so you've got a lot of DNI uh, aspects to it as well. Or it could accentuate bias, which does exist in recruitment. So I think, you know, there are inflection points as well around how these technologies um, will will evolve. Mm-hmm. I guess the reason, and I, I agree with what you've said there, and the reason why I asked about who's going to be leading it, the, uh, the client or the customer, is because I think quite often the client is wanting to get ahead of the curve to provide that better service to the customer. And I'd be interested to, to know whether that the client is sitting down with their customers to say, look, we, you need to be getting on board with this with our support. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what uh, recruitment agencies aren't great at is telling the customers what they, they need. And the best ones that I see are not order takers, they're partners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by its very nature, you know, we talk about, you know, recruitment agencies talk about being partners with their customers. That you know, For the most part, they're not, they're order takers. So why? why do you think that is? Why do you think there's a distinction between some who are and some aren't? Um, I think it comes down to experience. I think it comes down to, you know, you don't want to rock the boat. Yeah, you just want to make yeah. it yeah. nice and simple, and 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 you know that's the way it's always done. But the, the the good ones are the ones that are innovating and giving customers something they didn't know they needed, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's really important and value add. I always talk to customers around how do you make yourself sticky with you know the customer. You know, you are you you literally one phone call away from someone else stealing your lunch. Yeah. So what are the reasons that they would stay with you, and that you know. Typically, could be that they've got a great relationship with one of your consultants. Well, what if they leave? You know, it could be that um, you um, that you just work in their their niche. Great. Um, could be that you, know, you you don't work with their competitors. There's there's a whole host of reasons, but you know, understand why your customers would stay with you is really really important. And if there's not enough reasons, make sure there are a number yeah, of reasons. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and and I guess that comes back to the point of being good. Doing the things that you, doing what you're meant to be doing, but doing them well, and then understanding it well, so that you can impart that knowledge onto your other customers, rather than being like the in-house recruitment team who's perhaps looking inwards and not getting the experience of the wider industry. Mm. Yeah, hundred percent. Taking that best practice, sharing it, and um, and recruiters, 
I think the other thing that recruiters need to know is that hiring managers generally spend less than 5% of their time actually hiring. Mm -hmm. Recruiters should spend 100% of their time. Mm -hmm. That's just what they do. So the amount of knowledge they have is actually really useful uh, to their customers as well. So it's about how you use that and how you you show value other than the fact of we've just put a body on on a seat for you. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so since 2019, when you moved away from from S3, what are those those standout changes that you've seen in the industry over the last four years? So, I mean, as I said, I was really lucky. The last role, um, I actually had a real outside look. So it was almost mm-hmm. a very sort of soft landing for me. Um, I'd, I'd worked very hard on building up a, a network, and and I think S3 was quite. It was very good at doing what HIT did. It was very insular, didn't tend to look outside too much, pretty much didn't didn't need to. So um, what was a big um, interest for me was um, the number of these recruitment networks that sprung up. Um, you know, I won't bore you with all the names, but um, uh, worked with a number of those um, while I was um, uh, building my business. And then um, having sort of met and worked with Dolter and Charlotte, we decided that we felt that we could offer something different with with required and something that um, you know worked for us and indeed our indeed our members. So I think the biggest thing actually that I saw during COVID was that it, it was a strange time in recruitment uh, companies were usually so competitive against each other. Actually mm. this sort of global shock, it was actually the industry against oblivion yeah, as opposed yeah. to individual companies against each other so probably the biggest um i think change i've seen is that um the amount of businesses that are actually prepared to you know to talk to work together to you know to network to share experiences and we see that on a daily basis in our groups we've obviously got the three groups the startups the scale-ups and the enterprise groups and they all want different things but what's what's quite interesting is that a lot of their challenges are always very similar and there's a real willingness to help out other people because I think, you know, go back to my point, recruitment's tough. So if you can help someone else, you know, make it um, make it easier, yeah. then, then by all means you, you should do. So that's probably one of the biggest changes that I've, that I, I've sort of, you know, coming from a, a relatively insular environment mm-hmm. to there's a big wide world out there. Mm. And you think that the COVID was the trigger for that? It was almost there was so much uncertainty. Let's just speak with, let's just speak with people across the network and share thoughts and ideas without being, you know, too protective. I think it was very much there. I think I think it, it was it was always there, but I think COVID really made it. Yeah. You know, put it on steroids, just made it happen. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I don't. Th- I think the genie's out of the bottle now in 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 terms of in terms of that openness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I've coming into this you know, space with. Um, heading up the sales for Target Recruiting the UK and EMEA, I've never come across an industry which is so closely knit and a lot of people know a lot of people, um, which is which was a, a pleasant surprise for me that you speak with people and a lot of people just know each other, but but all well, on very good terms as well. So with that networking group that you, you, you've got with, with Required, what's, what sort of things are you discussing? What's coming up on a, on a daily basis? It, I it, guess it's going to be a whole load of things, but any any standouts? It, it, it really does vary by it really does vary by the group. Um, with the with the startup groups, it's generally um, uh, what I call hustle questions. Mm. How do I do this? How do I get this going? You know, I've been backdoored. How do I do this? What's good technology to start with? You know, um, 
anyone recommend an accountant, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that, that tends to be those. Um, and also as well, you know, if you start your own business, it's actually quite lonely. Yeah. So typically, yeah. you know, you won't have someone in your family who understands the industry. Um, you'll be very, you know, when you're starting, it's very much on. So, so actually, I think there's just a lot of, you know, comfort there um, for those people. The scale-up group tends to be around, you know, how, you, how you're hiring through, what sort of commission plans you, know, you want to put people on. A lot more about technology, getting the most out of technology, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And the enterprise group, you know, is, is a lot around just looking at sort of, you know, the, the wider figures, talking about the market, how you're finding hiring, those. Um, but, you know, increasingly, you know, those guys are, you know, at some point looking to exit their businesses. They're looking mm-hmm. to, you know, they've, they've been doing it a number of years, um, but they're looking for the next challenge and looking to exit the business as well. So um, it really does vary by, by group. But the groups are always incredibly chatty. And it always amazes me, um, actually, how we don't churn as much because they're quite busy, and you know, recruiters are generally and recruitment owners are generally busy people. But there's obviously a you know a, a strong interest and strong value there for them yeah. to be to be staying. Yeah, okay. It's just what you've been mentioning there about the network and sharing ideas. I, you know, I've worked at previous software companies where you kind of work within the company. What you provide is what you provide. But um, with, with Target Recruit being you know built on Salesforce. We work with a lot of different partners who are built on Salesforce or integrate with, and you know we get together very often when it's either a joint bid or we meet for a, a coffee or a pint, and just sitting down and talking about what's in, what's happening in the industry, what what's where the challenges, um, where's the successes, how we you know knit everything together. I think that I think that's hasn't just come that hasn't hasn't come by accident i think it's with the industry that we work in it's having an effect on the suppliers as well in a, in a really positive light because we can share and work together a lot stronger when we're all sharing the best mm. ideas yeah and, and people are generally looking for those win-win scenarios and you know we see people do things like job splits so you know typically you know i'm a food and beverage recruiter i've just you know a mate of mine is looking for an architect. Anyone want to do a split on it? And yeah. we, we see that as well. And you know, people helping out people. Yeah, and it's it's really really good. Yeah, to see. It, it does seem in a lot of ways like a selfless, a selfless market to be in, and people are happy to be sharing ideas. I think the thing I found as well is that as an industry, paying it forward really really works out. So when COVID came, mm-hmm. um, I had nothing to do but you know, I was locked down in the UK and. Um, had nothing to do other than give away my time so I think I put my calendar link out there and I spoke to 50 60 uh, generally quite small businesses and just tried to help mm-hmm. so they obviously you know people worrying about what going into I'd obviously work through recessions albeit um, a much bigger organization but you know, the lessons were exactly the same but what I found was that I'd just be as helpful as I could yeah and I just you know give away my time and then people would naturally want to buy more of it and you know want to bring me on board want put me on projects etc etc so so for me it was if I'd have been okay you paying for you (laughs) then um and and there is a fine line um between valuing your time and you know effectively just becoming a very uh you know a very free resource for people um and I worked out relatively quickly but Mm. actually what what for me was was great was that paying it forward just just worked Mm. and actually I think 
in these groups, you see exactly that. If you people can help out, they help out, and they know that they're gonna, you know, the karma will come back round, and they'll get yeah. it. And if someone sitting listening, watching this today, what 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 could they expect if they came to join Required? So first and foremost, we're you know we're we're open to new members all the time. Um, we um, we are a freemium model, so you know the the groups are completely free. Mm. Um, we welcome anybody. Um, we we'd only ask that you're. Uh, uh, recruitment founder or you know, sales director, and um, you know, come in and you know, and, and you know, contribute um, mm -hmm. to the to, to the groups. Um, we are, you know, uh, UK. We've got members in um, uh, United States, Europe, Australia is very big. Uh, we've got a separate group for that. So um, we, you know, I think we will probably be a thousand members by. Nice. Uh, you know, certainly by the end of the quarter. So, and working on growing that out uh, significantly, we'll be bringing in um, some exciting new um, subscription services for our members as well. Um, bringing in things that they need, such as you know, training advice, mastermind classes. So the sort of things that um, you know we see um, the need for. Um, and actually, when you're starting up or you're scaling up, you know, it's it's a fairly you know well-trodden path and a process but if you don't know or you don't have that yeah. current you know the experience of doing it again it's pretty lonely so we're, we're building that and we've partnered with Dan Alexander who's one of the best trainers in the industry to build us all of that coursework as well so that'll be exciting for us coming at the end of the year and for us it's um it's about uh evolution it's about innovation it's about constantly growing and how we can add and and again we, we're constantly looking at the member experience. So, how can we enhance that member mm. experience? Mm. And you've got a good, uh, strong partner network as well of different suppliers, such as such as Target Recruit or the uh, CRM providers, and that that's something that you can offer through as a as a recommendation. Hundred percent. And and I think the thing I love most about our partners is they've been chosen by us. We've chosen them because they've come as either recommendation for the group or we've worked with them previously. Or I've, you know, um, and. I think for me, um, it was a real vindication of the quality of our group that we're very early able to go to um, our original partners who are Workwell and Kingsbridge mm. with the proposition, and they were very, you know, they, they were, you know, they, they came on board very quickly, um, and you know, have been, you know, great with us ever since. And you know, as, as the network's grown, um, you know, they've, they've, they've been. Fantastic, and then we bought other partners such as cells, you know, CloudCores in the ecosystem. Um, on gradually as we've gone, um, I think the the thing for me is that our partners have to represent us as well. Yeah. So if we're recommending our products and services, we've got to believe in them. Mm -hmm. And if we don't believe in them, then um, it doesn't work for us. Mm -hmm. And I think you know what's really good about having partners as well is it doesn't always work out. So, it, you know, there, there are sometimes service issues. We're able, because they're partners, we've got a bit of skin in the game as well to um, help yeah. uh, escalate that for our members as yeah. well. And, you know, um, typically that's, that's worked really nicely for us. Yeah, and I, th I think the recommendations has been, certainly from, from our perspective, it's been invaluable. You know, we've been established in the UK for a number of years, but we relaunched a year ago and being, you know, being associated with, um, with yourselves and other bodies but being recommended just it has so much weight to what is a 
for a lot of organisations a bit of a minefield when they're looking for a supplier, whether it be CRM or other? Yeah, I mean, there are so many CRMs out there. And how do you start navigating um, yeah. that? So, you know, we've, we've chosen the ones that we feel um, work in, you know, for our members. And, you know, different systems will suit different members. Of course. Um, I, I would say um, you're trying to find the least imperfect when you're when you yeah. in a CRM. But, you know, the thing we enjoy about you guys is you're built on the Salesforce platform. Yeah. Um, I use Salesforce um, at S3. We built our own proprietary system. Um, probably wouldn't go and do that again, wouldn't recommend anyone doing that. But um, the thing I loved about Salesforce most was the ecosystem. And, mm. and, and again, Salesforce is a really good example of, um, they don't bang on about software. And I, I actually think Salesforce is the best marketing company in the world mm. because they don't talk about the software. They talk about the outcomes. They talk mm. about the feeling. And, you know, again, you know, you guys hook to that wagon, makes it, you know, you, uh, already some of your job's done because... Yeah. It's the you know, it's the number one CRM in the world. It is, and I think that you know that we'll keep going back to that network, but in the ecosystem, like with 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 Salesforce, is that you know Target Recruit's very good at what it does with the CRM, but because there's businesses now which don't necessarily want one provider who does everything. They're very open minded to having best of breed in pockets, but what's so important is for that integration across the piece. They don't want to be going back to that whole import export routine, which believe it or not, there's a and you'll see it, there's a lot of people doing right now and it causes all sorts of issues around data integrity and wasted time. But being part of Salesforce, you know, we put our hands up and say, okay, well if you have a particular requirement, we can't do it. There's a partner out there who we either work with or as part of the 4,000 different apps within the App Exchange, yeah. where it's usually a plug and play and it just enhances what they've got. And it's just that it's that network which which people love about Salesforce. And you know, not everybody gets it at first. Sometimes you have to start slow and educate them about the power of the platform rather than buying a product which ticks a lot of boxes but yeah. isn't necessarily easily uh, adaptable. But that's you know that's why I'm a target recruit because of Salesforce. Yeah, and I think I think that's the the interesting thing is is the platform, and you know if you're buying an enterprise, then platform is is important. So yeah, and yeah, we 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 got it, and you know I've known Andy, your CEO, for a mm. number of years as well, and um, um, when you effectively you know. Um, launched in the UK last year, um, it was a very natural thing for us to work with mm. him, um, and you now you guys on 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 that as well. Mm. Now it's been great to be part of it with you. Anything else that you want to be covering? I, I don't know if there's anything we could shoehorn in there about. You know, he's speaking of the, the larger groups talking about exiting the business. And I don't know if there's anything you want to talk about there. Yeah, what so points you would you would go through with that? Yeah, so. Yeah, maybe talk about M and A. Just saying, you know. So, um, yeah. So, what do you? Um, so, obviously, you talked about maybe the question you tee up. You talked about the enterprise group. Look and see what are you seeing in terms of M and A at the moment. So, you mentioned about as part of the required the networking group. There's kind of three three groups. You've got your your startup, your scale up, and then the the enterprise. Tell us a bit more about that merger and acquisition space and how people are, are looking to deal with it and approach it. So the M&A space is, is interesting. I mean, if you ask every uh, recruitment founder, I reckon 95% will say they want to sell their business, they want to exit their business. And um, But in reality, I think it's 0.1%, 0.1% of companies actually ever do, mm. um, do sell, do exit. And there's been some really 
nice juicy exits over the years. Uh, we think back uh, to Faden, and think back to Nigel Frank, and those are the poster boys of, um, of of the deals. But they're not always the ones that um, you know. That's 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 one in a good many um, thousand. So I think a lot of companies would have felt. Uh, very confident about that last year. I think it's a bit more difficult now. I don't think the valuations are going to be quite mm. as high. Um, what I would say as well is always be, you know, my advice to founders is always be in a position to be bought. Um, always make yourself buyable. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, there's always reasons why you'd want to sell. What's the reason someone would want to buy you yeah. or someone would want to, you know, invest in you, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, really good advice I would give to people is who's going to acquire you and who's, who would you like to be acquired by and get yourself effectively in the shop window for doing that. might not be that the deal comes along, but you want to be ready to, to go for it and be able to do, to do that. Um, key things, um, make sure there's no skeletons in your closet. I know it sounds um, super obvious, but um, actually you don't want to give reasons for for a deal to go away. Yeah. Um, I worked on uh, M&A for S3. The reason I generally mention is we never bought anyone. And actually the reason we never bought anyone was we, we looked at these companies, the, the investment deck was great. Um, you went in and actually the businesses had fundamental issues. They were either so reliant on certain key people that would possibly leave the business when you left. Um, there were uh, contractual risks in there. Um, one company we looked at, you know, their growth was completely based on FX over a number of years, as opposed to mm. you know actual actual real mm. growth. So, you know, and and then you know the cost of over fixing these things or the reduction in value, you know, made those made those deals go away. So, I would say always have your you know always be ready to there. Um, you know, I would advise anyone looking to sell their firm to start their data room day one. So. Um, you know, basically have a whole list of folders with all of your contracts, all of your leases, all of the... Make yourself Bible. Make it easy for someone to come yeah, in. Yeah. Um, so someone like me, who is working on behalf of an acquirer, isn't going to have to go and dig around. It can just be very, very easy and, and found. So, and part of that is having good systems, good processes, but it's, it's about being very well documented and, you know, just be ready to go. And is it is the whole M and A world to some people scary? Like, do they know where to start? Do they know what the potential skeletons could be? Are they hoping that people don't find them? What where, where do people start? No, I think I think once you made up your mind, you're looking to to do it. Then it's like anything. Get yourself a you know a really good advisor yeah, to yeah. to do that. Um, it's you know it's not. Would really, that be you, Bain? No, no, it's not. It's not really my. I said a really good advisor. Um, so it's not. You know, that's, I, I'm not. I'm not the finance guy that's going to help you through it. But um, again, get yourself match fit. Get yourself ready. Um, typically, I'll work with those. Um, those advisors in terms of making sure that the the operational side of things is absolutely on 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 point but you know it's like anything have yourself a specialist who can mm, who can mm. take you through that that process the other thing i would say as well is be clear around what it is you can do afterwards you know a number of people i know have exited recruitment businesses just got very bored very quickly and um, I'm sure, you know, you know, once the the novelty you know well you know, the novelty of spending the money i'm sure never never um, um, never evaporates, but um, sometimes it's very empty. 
you know, you've 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 put your heart and soul in for 10, 15, 20 years to the same thing. You've turned up at the same. Yeah, you know, it's been your it's been your life. It's been your social. Uh, it's been mm-hmm. your family mm-hmm. in some circumstances, and then it's like then ah, you're uh, you're exiting stage left. So. So I think be very, you know, mindful around, you know, have other aspirations and things to do. Yeah, okay. So we've covered a lot of, a lot of ground there. Your background, your learnings from S3, what you've seen as part of your um, consultancy network and group. Looking forward now to 2024, what do you think the, the main trends are that we're going we're gonna to be seeing in the industry? So I think we're going to see... Um, I, I yeah I'd I'd like to see um, a lot more moving towards contracts so that um, people you know, agencies are you know, really sort of locking in that value and and building predictability into their business. Um, there's going to be a lot of geopolitical shocks, both economy, yeah. um, you know, elections in the UK, potentially elections in the US, all sorts of different um, all sorts of different influences and 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 actually it can just be a change of party in the US or a change of party in the UK that can completely change the labor market as mm-hmm. well um, you know in terms of employment legislation rules so um, like anything recruitment just constantly change um, I think you're going to see recruiters really taking on board and grasping more technology um, I think you're going to start to see the companies who've built their data investments really start to pay off um, I think you'll see a continuing rise of small um, boutique companies where people are leaving the industry thinking that you know they can make a difference um, and, and and service customers in a way that isn't available in in the market. Um, and typically, what will happen is the tech companies will all start racing to hire all the best talent, and uh, you know everyone will you know the market will be back, and that will set the tone for. Um, the real sort of you know the skills gap, which again will really push the the agency world. So I'm pretty buoyant that um, I think 24 should be you know 23 seems like a bit of a, a correction and possibly mm. an overcorrection, and I think 24 will s- start to see a more normalisation of the market. Okay, with contract technology startup and the continued race for talent. 100 percent. Great. I think that's a, a good place to wrap things up. Thanks very much for thanks for having me. For being with us, an absolute pleasure. I'll have, to come, I'll have to come back in a year's time and see whether <laughs> yeah, all these, let's these see if those four these predictions <laughs> came through. Great, thanks, Andy. Cheers now.